I am in the Grotto Pod. And I'm in the Grotto Pod today. That is not Bridget Quinn. Author, you hear it? It's Lee Daniel Kravitz. Hello, hello, hello. Author of Strange Contagion. That is correct. Mm. Presently, presently working on a novel, which you probably know if you listened to last week's episode. That's right. Which let me let me let you in on a little trade secret and let you see how the sausage is made. That was actually recorded an hour ago. That's right. We had lunch in between. Sort of. I had a bar, and I'm eating mints right now, which I hope you can't hear. <laughs> uh, let me turn the page, literally and figuratively, here and tell you that our guest this week slash today is Lillian Lee. Uh, can't wait to have her here. Author of Number One Chinese Restaurant from Henry Holt. Um, again, uh, I'm going to try to pretend like I didn't just finish a podcast and I'm starting another one, but we definitely have a theme here today. It's a young uh, woman writing about um, sort of the Asian culture, Asian culture, Asian. Yeah. I was going to say Asian American, but but Crystal's was not Asian American. It That's was right. Korean, so, right? Uh, number one Chinese restaurant is about the Asian American experience and is set in, of all things, a restaurant. A Chinese restaurant. That's right. Um, Lillian Lee is a, um, a first time novelist, has been published in Guernica, Granta. She was the Glimmer Train, won the Glimmer Train New Writer Award, has been in Bon Appetit. Mm-hmm. It's all about food. It all, it is. Um, she worked at a restaurant for a month. Um, just a month. I'm really interested in that because yeah. I don't. Do you ever work at a restaurant? You know, no. Mainly because I would just be. I would be the clumsy waiter. I would be the guy who's basically like. I would dropping not, stuff. Dropping stuff. I would be the guy who would be fired, and I would also probably get caught stealing food, like in my break. I worked at restaurants for five years. Which one? Here, uh, I actually worked at the Hool Hands down at Fisherman's Wharf. No way! I used to go there. But you know, I worked at Aqua too. Oh, I was a back waiter in the kitchen at Aqua. That that's was a- my last real waiter job. That's impressive. That's impressive. That was yes. I have played basketball with Michael Mina lots of times. Wow! Yeah, that's so. that's very very cool. Well, yeah, not in the last twenty seven years, but, but still, I mean, that's that's a feather in your cap. It was quite an experience, and that's one thing I'm interested about. Can you approximate that experience having only worked in a restaurant for a month? Well, I can't wait. Let's talk about the research experience, and also, you know, frankly. Food. Anytime, food. anytime a writer writes about food, it sort of activates this sort of sensor, the sensory sort of experience, yeah. you know, in a way that many books do not. Are you an omnivore? You know, I, I meaning that do I just eat anything? Oh, no, no, oh, okay. no, an herbivore. That's herbivore, what I am. right? Yeah. <laughs> <That> just <laughs> no, an omnivore. Because I noticed after we finished our last recording, I was telling Crystal how the food in her book grossed me out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're like, oh, I love octopus. You know what? You know, here's the thing. Growing up in the South. I didn't eat Indian food until I was in my 20s. I didn't have sushi until I was 24. Mm-hmm. And even then, it was like a gamble. So the fact that over the last 15, 20 You've years... You've been making since, up for last time? I have been doing pretty well. <laughs> I grew up, you know, not eating anything. Here's my here's my sad tale. And if you are listeners to the Is It Good for the Jews podcast, you've already heard this sad tale. But uh, I know we only have a few crossover listeners. <laughs> um, I grew up... My father had the palate of an 8-year-old. Mm-hmm. Hamburgers. Yeah. Pizza. As a result, I had the palate of an eight-year-old. Right. And though so was difficult. You know, when you enter the adult world and you're like, you guys want to come over for dinner? What do you eat? Like, well, nothing really. (laughs) Tortilla chips. Yeah. Coke. In the last 26 years of being married, that has changed. However, simultaneously, I became a vegetarian. You did become a vegetarian. So I'm just as difficult. 
But you know, and I get no credit for having expanded. I, I give you credit. I totally give you thank credit. you, Lee. I do because, like, look, you become an intentional eater now. I am an intentional eater now. Not, not so much like look. You could, I guess technically could be an intentional eater if you put cheese on your hamburger for the first time, and you know instead of just my father it. never put cheese on his hamburger. Right, exactly. Yeah, but I he never did. <laughs> he's a creature of habit. I um yeah, but I mean I'd still prefer nachos. I'd still rather have some nachos, but yeah. but no, I do. And but the problem is I don't get credit because now it's like we want to have you guys over, but what does he eat? Oh man, you know what though? I think it's easier and easier to be a vegetarian. I've actually thought about becoming a vegetarian. Yeah, and don't, I, don't I flirt back and forth. For here's years. here's the reason why. People will say to me when I my off repeated, I want to get out of San Francisco. But what about the restaurants? And I say they don't really apply to me because there's they're all meat. That's right. So what are you going to do? Uh, no, the restaurants here are all meat. Oh, here they're all meat? Pretty no. much. Every time a new restaurant opens, it's Man, meat. When I lived in, meat. I, I grew up in, oh, I lived in Berkeley for a while. Yeah. And it vegetarian. Was all, vegetarian. And I'll tell you, it was soy milk and all that sort of stuff back in the early 2000s. I went to move into Boston for a while and no one had ever heard of soy milk. Really? It was crazy. I mean, like, and now it's everywhere. So just give it time. The world give it will some catch time. up. The world will catch up. Yeah. I can usually find something, even if that just means I'm eating a side of beans. I'm pretty happy. Oh, uh, beans, yeah. Which we digress. <laughs> <laughs> but Lillian, what we do. Lillian will be talking about uh, food a little bit, I suppose. Uh, her book is sort of a comic, sort of taught uh, a little action-packed. Yeah. So we're going to get into that a little bit, and we're going to get into her development as a writer. She is very young. She just finished her MFA in 2015. Where'd she go? Michigan. Oh, Michigan. Okay, cool. Yeah, Michigan. Princeton undergrad, Michigan grad. Mm. So let's. Uh, she should be here any minute. Let's get her in here. She also was part of the event that we alluded to last week uh, on the 29th with Vanessa Waugh, mm-hmm. with uh, Crystal, with Ingrid Rojas. That's right. There's another name. There's another there. name in there somewhere. Yeah, uh, and Aro Kwan, Reese Kwan. So let's go get her, um, and then we'll talk a little about the uh, number one Chinese restaurant. Lillian, welcome to the Grotto Pod. Welcome, Thank welcome. You. Happy to be here. What have you been up to uh, the last 24 hours? Well, I just went on a fun adventure, actually. Uh, I was at City Lights Bookstore. Oh, that's one of my favorite As stores one on the does. planet. <laughs> it's so good. And I actually forgot that I was in that neighborhood just three years ago when I was sort of doing some research in San Francisco's Chinatown. Mm-hmm. And I happened to stay at a hostel that had bed bugs. Oh. And so as I was walking up the City Lights, I was like, I'm getting a kind of panicky feeling. You're getting but itchy? I, yeah, I don't know why or what's happening. And then I started to recognize my surroundings. I was like, it's the bed what bugs. What is how does a bed bug experience manifest itself? Does it feel like a bunch of mosquito bites? It's no, like so start showing up. They essentially they were so big in the hostel that they crawled across the pillowcase. I oh. actually managed to trap an entire life cycle of bed bugs and showed it to the front desk, and they're like, "Are you sure you didn't bring in the bed bugs?" Nice. <laughs> yeah, of course they say they always say that. They don't want to know. How yeah. much sleep did you get that night? <laughs> I got a good amount of sleep that night. It was in the morning afterwards that you were I freaked out. Yeah, I should not have. I had this. So this well. is apropos of nothing except that story. I had this thing about a month ago. I was in Tahoe at a big thing with a bunch of guys, and I was sleeping in a certain room. Two other guys who were snoring. I'm like, "Screw this!" So I leave the room middle of the night, and it's a very big, luxurious house. But we're downstairs. I go, "Oh, I think I saw 
like a storage closet that had a bed in it. I'm going to go sleep in there. <laughs> oh, no. So I fall asleep, and two hours later, I feel something. <gasps> no, no, no. And I'm like, what the? <laughs> I thought, maybe, was that my foot cramping? And I was like, no, nah, I felt like something bit me. I'm like, no way. Turn on the lights, squeeze my toe, and blood comes out. Oh. Ooh, what was, was like, it? No way. Is there a mouse? It was a mouse. Oh, my God. And I didn't sleep anymore. <laughs> yeah, I died. Jesus. So I ran out of there. And did I, you have to get shots after that? No, I did a lot of Googling because <laughs> I thought, great, I'm going to get rabies now. I'm like, that's ridiculous. You're uh, just another Jewish hypochondriac. <laughs> Dude, seriously, if you get rabies, it's, it's like once you have rabies, you're screwed. You, you may as well. If you, you are take care of it then, you're done, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So I called my logical wife, and she's like, Google it. Uh, oh, Googling yeah. is a scary idea, man. You Usually it is, but in this case, it said there's never been a documented case of a mouse wow. transfer. Are you sure it was a mouse and not like a rat? I think a mouse might have written it, actually. Okay, yeah, probably <laughs> better PR for the yeah, mice. Something smells fishy there. Well, it wasn't a rat. Here, it was so. a, I'm still here. I'm not foaming at the mouth. Well, because we're in a small room. At if you present. do, it's going to be a little <laughs> bit hard to. I'm escaping fast. Uh, which brings us to Lillian's novel. Speaking of eating. Yes. Speaking of food and <laughs> eating, eating. And, sanitary, yeah. and sanitary conditions. Yes. So <clears throat> just getting a little background, uh, unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to read the whole novel. That's totally fine. I, I, did, I did the download the first, like, so I got a sense of what it was like. And I think it's really cool. So we sort of joke around here that there's sort of a Vanessa Waugh mafia Mm. Of oh, yeah. writers that she funnels to us oh, to come so on the show. And it's weird that today, I mean last week, <laughs> we had Crystal on, and That's now right. I have you and who are both members of the Vanessa Mafia and both like, oh, they're Asian American young women mm-hmm. writing novels. Mm-hmm. But your novels couldn't be more different. Mm-hmm. Um, we went on with her about, you know, what inspired her to write her novel. Mm. What inspired you? To write yours, and it can't be the month you worked in a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> Which we're going to talk about. Which we are going to talk about. I'm not sure. Yeah. So, in some ways, it is and it isn't uh, inspired by my time in that Chinese restaurant. Because when I was working in that restaurant, I was not thinking this is going to make an amazing novel. I was just trying to get through the day without crying in the walk-in fridge more than once. <laughs> but was there any sense, because I read that your mother had worked in a Chinese restaurant when she first came to the she States. Had. Was there a living legacy type of thing? <laughs> there was. You know, I think pretty much uh, from as far as I can remember, both my parents were like, you have to work in a restaurant once in your really? life. Yeah, both me and my brother, that was our task. Uh, in order to know what it was like to be in the service industry and mm-hmm. to sort of well, that's take. fair. Actually, yeah, it's 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 interesting. Like I'm afraid of very specific things. <laughs> that is one of them. Working in, in the, the service, service industry? industry? Yeah, well, working in a restaurant. I know. Like Larry was telling me earlier that he he's done it. He did it for five years, but I still have dreams. Yeah, you look tougher. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, did you, can I ask you? Did you smell like the food when you came home every night? Because Almost certainly, but I couldn't really smell after a certain point. Yeah, but yeah, But I could yeah. feel it on my skin, that was for sure. But was it, did, what, was it inspiring in any way while you were there? No, no, not at all. Um, I was actually working on a different novel at the time. I was running to the Panera across the street during my break between lunch and dinner service mm-hmm. and just trying to write what was a beach novel, actually. Mm-hmm. It's about two families that ran into each other at the beach, and it was, like, fun and frothy and the opposite of a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you were working doubles. Yeah. Yeah, it was um, it was forced double shifts. That's brutal for yeah. a newbie. Which I didn't even realize was an 
unnatural and not normal. And, and maybe illegal. And, and almost definitely illegal. Yeah. So, yeah, that's crazy. So how come you lasted a, a whole month? I mean, I would have left that like a so week later. Kind. That is kind. I've, um, I've had to make excuses for myself uh, since I quit for not even lasting a month. Can so. I tell you something? Like, <laughs> here's the deal. Like, I believe life is short. <laughs> and if you know something's not right, mm-hmm. if you are that miserable, mm-hmm. Screw the rest of the world. You're out of there, man. Mm. Like, totally. I was. I had a job one time, something I, I wasn't proud about for a while, but I lasted two days before I literally walked out <laughs> and just didn't show up again. And, like, I would never do that now. I would never encourage anybody to do that. Mm-hmm. But I did that. And I it just, I knew the minute I got there, mm. boy, I made a mistake. Once. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and you're, you're number one, so you have to get out of there. You kind of did. <laughs> number one. I love you. Number one. Um... I just glanced at my notes really quickly. So what did you get out of that experience? And did you get something as basic as a setting? Yeah, and I think, you know, it was really only after I quit that restaurant that I started to realize maybe this was a place that would be really perfect for a novel. Um, and I think it was because when I quit, I was I was embarrassed. I felt pathetic. I actually mm. asked my mother for permission to quit. I was like, are you going to look at me differently? Aww. What I think I actually asked was, like, are you going to make fun of me at, like, family <laughs> gatherings? And what, what point in your life were you in grad school at this time or undergraduate? It was the summer right before grad school. Okay. Um, and so I was working in the restaurant simply to make a little money before grad school mm-hmm. and it just happened to be a Chinese restaurant because that's what we found as a family together um, uh, so this is a family experience it was a you- family experience like my mom found a, the ad in the classified section of the Chinese newspaper what was the worst part about working in a Chinese restaurant so that was the thing that I only realized after quitting I assumed it was the physical challenge and how I was just terrible at the physical parts of being a waitress I couldn't balance a tray everything hurt all the time But, you know, weeks passed after I quit and everything stopped hurting. um, And I still felt, you know, really upset about that experience. So that's when I realized that it was actually the emotional toll of being, you know, someone with a Chinese face working in a Chinese restaurant. Um, You know, being that kind of in that kind of position, I realized that I was serving customers who essentially kind of treated me like I was part of the furniture yeah. and all my coworkers as well. And just sort of being in that environment with those forced double shifts six days a week, um, that ended up, you know, putting me in a really lonely and isolated and kind of like alienated space. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, how could anyone last longer than a month in that space? Yeah, so that's what I was, that's the question that was just forming my mind is at the end of that, did you start asking questions of your coworkers? So I think that, you know, it was maybe what really set the whole thing in motion, if I look back on it, was the day that I quit, I told everyone I was quitting. And up until that point, you know, I had chatted with them just because, you know, we have some slow hours, but there was a kind of language barrier just mm-hmm. because my Chinese is fairly rudimentary when I'm speaking, though I can understand. So I would, you know, overhear their conversations more than participate. That was part of the loneliness as well. But when I quit, you know, all of a sudden, uh, you know, I just kept having these conversations with each of my coworkers, all of whom had been in that restaurant or in a restaurant for decades, and you know, uh, and when you say an A it. restaurant, was it a Chinese restaurant? Because I feel like mm-hmm. that is a that is a Specific. sui generis mm-hmm. type of restaurant yeah. experience. It's not for the if only because you have lifers. Yeah, 
Yeah. All the restaurants I worked in, we didn't have lifers. Exactly. You yeah. know, we were all on our way to somewhere else. You were yeah. floating. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, definitely Chinese restaurant. And in fact, I, I when I wrote a short story just to see if I could deal with the setting, having only been there for a month, <laughs> I remember writing one where uh, one of the like lifer characters is fired, and my workshop classmates were really confused. They were like, why would they fire their best waiter? Because they didn't realize that all of the waiters were lifers. They were all mm-hmm. the best waiters. Mm. They're all actually expendable in a way yeah. that, you know, the ones who worked in more American restaurants uh, had no understanding of that kind of setting. So what was it like trying to, to, to process the cultural gap between a lifer in a Chinese restaurant, someone who is a first-generation immigrant, and this is how they make their living? Mm-hmm. They have kids. You know, what does your dad do? He works in a Chinese restaurant. Mm-hmm. And... The Americanized world you were living in outside of that, where no one works in a Chinese restaurant for their whole life, no one works in a restaurant for their whole life. Mm-hmm. How do I? How, how do, do you I, process that at the time, and 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 how did it inform the book? I think you know that kind of brought me back to that question of you know how could anybody last in that environment for longer than a month? Because that's like the mindset of somebody who is thinking about restaurant and restaurant work, maybe mm-hmm. more in that sort of Western uh, setting. Um, but you know. What I ended up kind of transferring my question into was, you know, so what does it look like for Mm -hmm. someone who is in that environment? How does that environment shape a person who is there for years, decades, their entire lives? And And especially in the U.S., because it's not even a mm -hmm. Western point of view. It's an American point of view. Mm -hmm. If you go to France... There's respectable, you know, yes, a right. maitre yeah, d' yeah, or yeah. someone right, who's worked right. in a restaurant forever. Mm-hmm. So to exist in that world, we're like, I'm in the U.S., but I'm working in a restaurant my whole life. Mm-hmm. It's a specific type of challenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there isn't that kind of respect given, mm-hmm. um, even if you are ostensibly amazing at that job. Right. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm not sure how, five years in restaurants, I don't know how I could tell if I was amazing. I wasn't. But if <laughs> someone was amazing at like, like these trays up in the air, you know. I don't think you're like the, the, the people who work in a restaurant who are amazing are the ones who don't have to write down orders. Mm-hmm. You sing and dance when they drop off their orders. They, yeah. they converse with you. They basically become ingratiate themselves with the party. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know. No, wait, have you have you taught? Have you taught? Uh, like classes? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I teach at the University of Michigan. Okay. I think it's similar to that. Mm-hmm. The best waiter is the one who walks at the table and understands the individual needs of everyone at the table. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Teaching mm-hmm. is right. the same sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it is also, weirdly, like, singing is was a way for me to figure out who was the best at the restaurant where I worked. Really? <laughs> really? Yeah, it was like the ones who sang were often the ones who always were, like, highest on the tip roster just because they just never let anything get to them. I think yeah, yeah, yeah. a big part of being amazing is just having everything kind of like wash off of you. You're carrying everything on the tray, including the emotions, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. I think that's it. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Uh, what became of the beach novel? Oh, my God. I don't know. It's somewhere still, I think, in my Microsoft Word, but I don't think it's something to return to. And let me ask you this, and I do have a personal reason for asking this question. We're... we're were the characters in the beach novel also Chinese Americans? One of the families was, and the other family was um, was white. I think that was what I was playing with was you know a cultural comedy. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I think that in in some ways you know number one Chinese restaurant is also that. But I think I realized that I didn't want to necessarily have to deal with both a Chinese family and and a white family. Mm-hmm. I wanted to maybe focus just on a Chinese yeah. community. That makes sense. Lee, in your novel that you're working yeah. on, yeah. Is, are there Jewish people? Um, there are. There are. But I'll tell you, more my end, what's, what I'm doing is I'm, 
I'm writing in the perspective. Uh, there's three main characters, and the two of them I'm working on are uh, are women. Mm. And so getting into the mindset of characters who are women is very different than being in the mindset of a character who's a man. Mm -hmm. So that has been sort of a, 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 you know, a stretch for me to learn how to do and to to write in a way that feels authentic and, Mm -hmm. and, and true to who they are. And that's not, that's a nice opener to ask Lillian the same question (laughs) Mm -hmm. because you're, again, I only read the first 50 pages, but (laughs) uh, male protagonists, Mm What and I know that you did a lot of. Uh, you you seem to be a believer in doing your research mm. to get things right. So, what sort of preparation did you do to get in the mind of a male protagonist? That's a really great question. I feel like you know what kind of inspired um, that male protagonist, Jimmy, um, was actually this moment where my boss at the Chinese restaurant was yelling at me in front of all the customers, uh, uh, which oh, is wow. just sort of a rite of passage if you work in a Chinese restaurant. I told my mom about it, and she was like, "He went easy on you." <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, and as he was, you know, scolding me in front of everyone, I looked into his eyes and I saw something that was kind of unexpected. Which fear? No, actually, like true calm and almost a kind of excitement. Mm-hmm. Usually, I feel like when people are angry, you see fear or you see a kind of, you know, discomfort because it's not necessarily the most comfortable emotion. This person's enjoying it. Yeah, I felt like he was really in his zen in that moment. If that made sense, like yeah. he had just found his happy place. And so every time I tried to get into, I think, the head of Jimmy, I would just think back to that moment and just try and figure out, you know, what exactly might make someone's happy place one of anger and what does that feel like? And I think that was a good starting point for me. That's that's terrific. I'll tell you, you know, a lot of the characters, you know, some of the best characters in the world, the psychology of that is is what makes them so interesting. Is there trauma in the past where they've continued to, to relive this anger or mm-hmm. this pain and they feel it's they become so used to it so then they find it or they find their sense of control mm-hmm. in these moments. And that's what makes it. I love characters like that. Mm-hmm. And what a crazy experience to have. Somebody go off on you like that. Mm-hmm. It is, I can imagine that being terrifying. How did you, how did you handle it? <laughs> well, ever since that moment, every time he would kind of come near me, I would jump a little bit. Yeah, you had PTSD. Yeah. Did, did, it, did it mean a lot less to him than it did to you? Oh, so much less. Every time I jump, he would sort of like put his like arm around my, me and be like, it's okay, like little sister. He'd, you know, call me a nickname. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, I remember what you used to be like. <laughs> is this a customer or is this a, a coworker? No, it's, this is my boss. This is your the boss, yeah. manager. Yeah. Uh, it's like I remember once going into a Greek restaurant and seeing the owner screaming at someone <laughs> and then noticing on the wall there are all these pictures of him with his arm around everyone, you know, <laughs> yes. just, a, just a hot run guy ran hot. Well, listen, man, you hear like if you have this sort of like uh, Woody Allen sort of, you know, uh, well, you and I have sort of a Woody Allen. Well, we do. But I'm just saying like, you know, like you think of these New York movies, right? Or these New York sort of oh, stories. Oh, sure. Yeah. Where it's like. The, you know, somebody wakes up and what's the ideal thing that they want to do? They want to start a restaurant. The final scene of the movie is they, they started a restaurant or a cafe. And the reality, from what I understand, from anybody who started a restaurant or owns a restaurant or runs a restaurant, is that it is, it's not only the hardest thing in the world to do, but it is, uh, I mean, it's, it's not pleasant. Mm-mm. It's not pleasant mm, for high nobody, stress. Right. Nobody mm-hmm. really wants to it's be very there. very high stress. Well, it depends on where you're at. Like I said, I worked at Aqua, which is this big restaurant. It's mm-hmm. actually kind of a groundbreaking restaurant. And yeah. I was a back waiter in the kitchen, and, and in that kitchen at the time, five of the guys who were working online became celebrity chefs. Mm-hmm. And that was the highest stress. Guys were screaming at each other. Guys mm-hmm. would quit in the middle of a shift. <laughs> Jeez. But there was a lot at stake. 
Mm-hmm. And it was working out the way they wanted it to, mm-hmm. but this was just part of how it worked how out. How it works, right. Mm-hmm. But I think now is a good time for you to explain to our listeners a little bit of the plot of the book so they know what we're talking oh, about. Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, so number one, explain Chinese- Jimmy's trauma. <laughs> uh, so basically, number one, Chinese restaurant takes place in an upscale Peking Duck restaurant outside D.C., uh, actually in Rockville, Maryland, to be specific. Which is where you're from. Yes, that's where I grew up. Um, and it looks at the lives of the family that owns the the restaurant, which is the Hans, um, as well as the uh, their longtime employees, mm-hmm. and, and what happens when one summer a tragedy befalls this restaurant, uh, and this working family no longer has this place of both business and also kind of a second home to return to, and you know how do they make their lives now that there's not this imposing structure in it? And during it all, the the owner Jimmy he has other ambitions. Yes, yes. So sort of what sets everything in motion is uh, Jimmy, who is the youngest son of the Han family, as well as kind of the black sheep who inherits his late father's restaurant, the Beijing Duck House, and. He doesn't think it's good enough for him. Um, he doesn't feel like he's getting the kind of respect that he wants running this very, you know, successful, but maybe not as, you know, foodie kind of restaurant. Mm-hmm. And so he has ambitions to start something in D.C. proper um, and, and an Asian fusion restaurant, to be specific. <laughs> <laughs> Of how of the moment, <laughs> and and to what degree is he motivated by wanting to break away from the old ways? Mm-hmm. And show the world that he is a modern man. I think, you know, that's definitely a big part of it. And I feel like that's maybe what is most obvious to the character. Um, But I like having maybe a motivation that the character themselves can't really articulate. And so for Jimmy, what I had thought of was that he thinks maybe he wants to be a modern man. But what he's maybe really reacting to is this you know, lack of respect that's given to Chinese restaurants, the Chinese mm-hmm. cuisine in America. Um, and, and that's maybe really what's driving him and, and driving his anger and, and driving the shame that he feels. I mean, how much of that is a lack of respect coming from him? I think that, you know, it's definitely internalized. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think also, you know, he, as a character, is somebody who does love food, or at least the idea of making food that um, is really delicious. And, and potentially he sees that the food that his dad makes um, is more about maybe getting a profit mm. than, than making people really, like, blow their, their taste buds out of their Yeah, I was going to go the other way, saying, you know, all this fancy food, mm-hmm. is it really better than mm. the old favorites? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about the process of writing this book. Mm-hmm. So you started it when you were in grad school? Yep, pretty much the first semester of grad school. And, okay, see, I was, on the last one I told Crystal, I'm getting confused. I don't know. I researched both of you yesterday. <laughs> and I don't know who wrote for four months before they had an outline. Was that you or her? I think that was her. I don't think that was me. Okay. And then who started with short stories? She did. She did. That's right. You started with a setting. I started with a short story. Oh, you started also, also with a short story. I also started with a short story. What was the short story? This is the one you were talking about? Yeah, yeah. this is the one that oh, I right, gave right. to my workshop mates. Um, yeah, it was basically just a short story to see, can I put something in a Chinese restaurant, considering the fact that I'd lasted not even a month. You know, it's interesting. Uh, you have people who research, 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 mm-hmm. you know, uh, with their books. I mean, you know, our last guest researched quite a bit, and, and she talked quite a bit about that. And then you've got writers who are 
absolutely brilliant about just getting a little taste of something and then being able to extrapolate because that's the beauty of fiction. You mm-hmm. can just kind of make it. It doesn't have to be steeped in reality, 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 you know. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. Where were you kind of in that? I think I definitely tend towards the latter. Um, and, you know, like the, the ungenerous part of me calls that lazy. Um, mm. but, but I think it is true that I found that too much reality kind of suffocates my imagination mm-hmm. because I do start to then feel like there's a real difference between what feels real and what feels fake. Yep. Mm-hmm. But I think I did read that you interviewed a fire inspector. That I did. Yeah, yeah. to find to get to kind of the nuts and bolts. Yeah, I think that, you know, what my rule of thumb became um, for research in this book is just, you know, if there is a situation that is physically impossible, I, I want to know that it's physically impossible. Mm-hmm. So I talked to the fire inspector because I was pretty sure the fire scene had elements to it that were impossible. And how much... How much of a stickler are you if you're creating a world and it's in a, an actual place that exists, like mm-hmm. Rockville, Maryland? How much of a stickler are you in getting all those facts right? I think that for some reason, the the thing that always kind of stops me in my tracks that I want to get really correct is like traffic patterns. Like I kind of uh, <laughs> does that make really? sense? I feel like that's somehow some of the details that really make a place. It's like when is there traffic? Where is there traffic? What's the highway like? Huh. What's the road look like that takes you to this place? I kind of weirdly want to get all the street directions correct more than anything else. Isn't that funny? It's like a, you kind of have to have structure, like an imaginative structure before you can put yeah. that, that story down. Like some city planning. Some city planning. I love it. I love it. And while you were writing it, how much of your consciousness did this book take up? That's a really good question. I think that it, at times, definitely felt like a boyfriend, if that makes sense, that amount of consciousness where I just enjoyed kind of thinking about it. I'd sort of smile dreamily while I was at work <laughs> and just think about the characters. So I think probably about as much as like a, a new crush or romance takes up your brain, that's how much it took up. That is... That's positive, man. That's, yeah, that's <laughs> great. Yeah. That's great. So at this point, is it sort of like an old boyfriend? You're just like, okay, get out of my face. <laughs> okay, I don't want to talk about this anymore. Maybe like an old flame where I'm just like, you still look pretty good. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> nice. So talk a little bit about the process of writing it, too. You were in grad school. Mm-hmm. Were you keeping a regular writing schedule at the time? Yeah, I think that, you know, it was both regular and steeped in novelty. I feel like that's kind of what makes me tick. Yeah, how is it different from writing the beach novel when you were an undergrad? Um, So I think that, you know, even with writing that beach novel, that was like, it was kind of fun for me to be like, I'm running into Panera to write this novel. Like, I like a kind of structure that's almost Mm -hmm. like a fun story I could tell. So, for uh, example, the first couple of months of writing Number One Chinese Restaurant, I borrowed this term from a friend who runs marathons. Um, where she calls it, like, her two hours of torture. So uh-huh. I would do, like, an hour of, like, running or some kind of exercise that sucked, and then I would just do an hour of writing, <laughs> and I would call it my two hours of torture. I love that. And that worked really well for me for, like, a summer. So that was kind of, you know, I would just invent, like, structures like that mm-hmm. um, to make myself write. I think it's a way to do it. You know, people, when I teach, you know, people ask me, like, how much, how much do you, you know, write or what's a good schedule? In my mind, it's like as long as you're writing something a day, even if it's just 20 to 30 minutes, as long as you, you have that routine, because mm-hmm. the minute that you stop, I, f- I find that the momentum just – it's it's hard to pick back up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know. It just sounds like that's what you set yourself up with. You, you gave yourself a, a, a routine. Mm-hmm. Um, like no matter what, I'll give myself an hour every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are, are, this is a question for both of you guys. Um, are you able to continue that when you're on book tour? 
No. <laughs> but my book tour <laughs> was pretty Wandering around short, San Francisco. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just, you know, experiencing the world, which is also helpful for writing. <laughs> it does make a big difference. Usually you're so isolated when you're working. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I found, like, at some point, like, when I was traveling, like, I'm on an airplane, I have a five-hour flight. Mm-hmm. Then I worked. Yeah. Actually, that's what I did when I was flying into San Francisco. You worked um, on the plane? I worked on the plane. Because mm-hmm. I was flying United, and they don't have those little TVs on the back of the seat. No, yeah. you got to have, have your iPad. I yeah. know. You got to download the app. Like, who has time for that? <laughs> um, uh, United. And, and so I, out of boredom, decided to start working. And it worked really well. I know. It's, it, that's, that's the way to do it. Like, if you find time. Tour, it's one of these things. And it's just sort of off track a little bit. But... Tour, it's 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 exciting. At the same time, there's a lot of slow parts. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you show up at a town. The town is not always the biggest town. If you're in Chicago or New York or things like that, there's stuff to do. But mm-hmm. if you show up in like you know smaller towns, there's very little. So what you do, or at least what I did, was you know when I'm driving there or flying there, I work and then uh, have time off. I have something to eat, and then when my event comes up in the evening, then I to the event, and then I'm back. So there's a lot of downtime. Mm-hmm. That's where I found out. Yeah, yeah it's very hot and cold. Like, everyone wants to talk to you, and then there's nobody. Like, it's very strange. I know, you feel that, <laughs> too. You're like, am I doing something wrong? I feel like last night's event was probably a pretty big one. Oh, it was really big. It was it was all filled up, actually. Yeah. How, how many? How long have you been touring? You said um, it was a short tour. Yeah, so I, oh, I did East Coast pretty much right when the book came out, so that's like June 19th. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was, you know, didn't do much, just kind of hung around Ann Arbor, where I'm from, um, and uh, San Francisco is sort of the very final thing that mm. I've done. So there was actually a lot of lag time before I came out here. I think it's interesting you say you're from Ann Arbor. Mm. Yeah. Um, and not you live in Ann Arbor. I was actually born in Ann Arbor. Oh. Um, uh, and then... Stayed until I was two. And you went to Rocco? Then, actually, I think New, maybe New Jersey, then New Mexico, and then Rockville. But then when you, can I ask you, like, when you left Rockville? Mm-hmm. Did they, they say, don't, say go back you, to don't go back to Rockville? She's too young for that. <laughs> no. She's way no. too young for that. Have you ever heard that song? <laughs> no, it's an R.E.M. Are song. Are you serious? <laughs> I'm serious. No, yeah. It's a great song, man. It was in 1984. Ah. Uh, Dude. I'm also just a music dummy. I didn't know music really? existed until I was 12. Well, I don't blame you. Yeah. Okay, that's a good opening. Let's talk a little bit, <laughs> a little bit about your family. Yeah. <laughs> yeah we got we, when we when we end it, we wrap this up when you, you edit this and we got to put don't go back don't to go back to rock. Feel like can't for the right. Um, <laughs> are, you just hum a, a few bars. Yeah. Now? yeah. yeah. Right. So are you first generation American? Uh, yes, I am. Both parents. Both parents. And what brought them here? Uh, school. Uh, my dad was getting a PhD in physics, um, uh, and my mom followed. At Ann Arbor? In Ann Arbor, University of Michigan. How do you like that? How do you feel about Jim Harbaugh? Uh, I, we sell a lot of his books at the bookstore really? where I work, yeah. <laughs> I just asked because I just read something today about he needs to put up or shut up this year. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, wait, tell me, you work at a bookstore right now. I do. Which bookstore are you at? Literati Bookstore. Literati, it's one of my favorites. Really? I love Literati. It's so good. It's great. It's one of the best best independent bookstores on the East Coast. Really? Mm-hmm. It is. It's great. It's only five years old, but it's just it's so beautiful. It is. It's a good one. <laughs> I've heard really good things about... Ann Arbor, except in the movie Five Year Engagement. <laughs> they made it look like the backwoods. Really? Well, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's probably not true. But so growing up, you, you said your mother was working in a Chinese restaurant. If your father was a physicist, mm-hmm. how did you end up on the path toward being a writer? Well, so I think that, you know, both my parents loved 
to read. Mm -hmm. And growing up, my mom would tell me that she would forfeit her lunch money in order to buy books. And so she was like 90 pounds up until she came to America <laughs> and then started eating hamburgers. <laughs> Got like my dog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I think that, you know, they always told me growing up that um, I can spend as much money as I want if it's on books. Um, hmm, that's so the right attitude. About I say the same thing to my kids. Really? I do. Do they take you up on that offer? Jesus, yeah. And it's, <laughs> yeah, it's just a, my, our, their bedrooms are just a disaster of books. <laughs> <laughs> An apocalypse of books. I would. Uh, I was a bad student in that I would sometimes like pilfer books from the classroom library. Like I have a lot of books that back? have Mrs. Strayed like written on it. Oh. Dude, that is awesome. And you know what? Good for you because if you hadn't done that, <laughs> nobody else would have taken those books anyway. I mean, let me tell you. <laughs> I'm all about stealing books from, from libraries. Yeah, you heard it here first. All right, You're Debbie like the Hoffman. devil on my shoulder. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You can quit any job you want, take all the books you want. <laughs> I'm going to be your id. I'm going to be your id, and he'll be your, your I'll super be your ego. Super ego. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, why are you a writer? Yeah, yeah. just do what you want to do. <laughs> um, and I think also growing up, I was a really difficult child in that apparently everything I ate, I would either like poop out or throw out up immediately. Yeah. Unless they put me into a car with like a tape that told stories like that was books the on only early books on tape early books on tape and I would just listen to like Chinese fables uh, while my parents drove me around like in my vomit covered onesie <laughs> and I think that those are my first memories was listening to like a soothing voice telling me an awesome story when did you start writing creatively I think it was, um, you know, what I can remember is probably fifth grade when I started writing fan fiction mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, for who for Buffy Harry Potter. Harry Potter. I was just going to say, it's going to be Harry Potter. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, I went into sort of the more, uh, like, the Japanese animes, like Yu-Gi-Oh! Um, after that point, this is what I was watching on TV. Yeah. Uh, You're like the same age as my kid, huh? <laughs> He's 21. No, I'm older than that. Okay. But that's, <laughs> his, his, but that's, that's his experience was Yu-Gi-Oh! And I, I, I tried to get on board enthusiastically. Did you really? Yeah, here's here's some anime books, you know, anything, yeah, whatever is interesting. Stoke you. your, int your, your imagination, right? Yeah. That's mm -hmm. it, and you learn how to tell stories that way. Yeah, and you also learn how to maybe insert yourself into stories, too. Mm -hmm. um, because, I mean, so much of the stuff I was writing before was just what I wanted out of my life. And I think mm -hmm. that, you know, um, having that connection to the work that I have has been really helpful now. Certainly to, to take the point of view of so many people who aren't oh, young yeah. women. Yeah. As yeah. you do at another one Chinese <laughs> restaurant. Here's a question I ask almost every writer who comes through here. Mm -hmm. We were just talking about this beforehand. Yeah. So you started writing there, you know, fan fiction. Mm -hmm. What was the moment when someone told you you were good and who was it? Hmm. Does my dad count? Sure. Okay. Yeah. So I remember... If you took it seriously, and you're like, come on, dad. <laughs> I remember in second grade, we were learning about haikus, and I wrote a haiku about, like, a silent forest, um, and then a raindrop falling, and then the forest is no longer silent. Mm -hmm. And he read it, because it was posted on the bulletin board, and he came home, and he just said, I, you're a genius. That was just, like, the best poem I've ever read. And, you know, he's Aww. always kind of gassed me up like that. Mm -hmm. But I think that, you know, it's probably that moment where I just thought, oh, maybe, like, I do have something because that's a pretty outsized reaction. Even yeah, for even for dad. your dad. <laughs> was it always positive getting that kind of feedback from your dad if he gassed you up or did it put any pressure <laughs> on you? <laughs> I think that he was pretty good at um, balancing it 
balancing both mm-hmm. so that I got a little bit of pressure, but it was always relieved by the idea that, you know, I couldn't disappoint him, even if I tried. Yeah, that's really, really nice. That's really, really nice. I remember doing that second grade haiku unit. It's really? a second grade thing. It is. When you learn how many syllables five, are in Five, seven, five. And isn't there another... <laughs> so, there's, an, there's, yeah. there's another form of it, too. I always learned it as the male version oh. and the female version, believe it or not. The, <laughs> the male version was haiku, and the female version was a different version. I, I know I'm not making this up. You're looking at me like I'm crazy. No, I'm looking at it because I hope it's not like an anatomical thing, like a male and female plug. No, or it's or not. Like a it's female not. is 757 or no, something. No, 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 no. It's totally weird. I mean, it, that's how they taught it to us back then. It was mm. like there was 575, five, and then there was another, uh, another sort of hmm. kind of like other side of of that and it was a different syllable structure Mm. and uh we learned one first and then the other Mm. and i had a really similar experience where i remember it was me and another friend of mine after learning haiku Mm -hmm. spent weeks in between classes working on haiku together Mm -hmm. and how and it's because they're quick they're quick and you have to tell a story and get a feeling across Mm -hmm. super fast like a six word story Mm -hmm. it's beautiful um so you were showing promise and you were showing interest. <laughs> when does this turn into a potential career choice? That's such a good question. Is it high school? Are you already thinking about this in high school? I don't think don't so. Don't tell me you're a bad student because I know you went to Princeton. <laughs> <laughs> they let actually really And bad you're young enough there. that that story, you always hear like guys might, oh, I sucked. Where'd you go to school? Princeton. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it doesn't work that way anymore. I know. I sent a kid to college. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Uh, I feel like it must have been in college that I thought that this could be a viable career. Career choice, probably because I was studying for the first time with um, with Joyce. Ac- with Joyce not Curley. Joyce because she scared me, scared uh, me and and you know there was just actual career writers and I just uh-huh. didn't know that that was a possibility. I just thought this writing thing was something that I would do more as a hobby. What had you come in thinking you were going to do, or did you know? I probably law school. Mm. Um, there wasn't pre law, but uh, I figured I'd just go down the English major track and then pick another kind of, you know, finishing school after that point. You know, it's funny. We never really talk about that on this podcast or even within these walls, how many people (laughs) were English majors because it was a precursor to something else. Mm. It was never an end. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, I'm an English major. Oh, you're going to go to law school? (laughs) Right. Well, it's a a good foundational thing. And then, I mean, I get to read all these great books and then I'll go to trade school. That's right. (laughs) Yeah, I totally get that. I think that's totally it. What what else are you going to do with it? Teach. Teach, right. Mm. Or gym. You teach gym. PhD. Yeah. I think that was a potential other route just because my parents uh, came from an era where like PhDs were like the most secure path Mm. to job security. Boy, not anymore. Not so much now. Uh -uh. But you dodged that bullet, so it became a viable... (laughs) (laughs) To get in the line of fire of another bullet. But But it it became viable. At mm-hmm. one point. Um, and were you, you know, I asked this question because two weeks ago we had uh, someone on who I had taken a classroom in grad school and he didn't remember me. Oh. <laughs> and he prefaced it by saying, yeah, I remember all my best students. No. <laughs> and I was like, dude, I thought I was killing it at the time, but I guess not. Um, were you killing it? Um, I remember not killing it. I remember actually, so... Princeton had this really weird system where you, as a class, you would vote for the best person in your class to oh my gosh. give like a reading at this like end of semester reading. They had it after every end of semester, and you were voted in, and I was not voted in. And so I was like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not very good. So you I'm weren't the popular. best of the best. No. But were you among the best? Did you make well, the it doesn't finals? even matter. See, I think that that's a, that's a faulty question because I think oh. it's 
super subjective. Yeah. And, uh, most, yeah. But the reason why I'm asking is what gave you the confidence yeah. to go on? I was confident. Yeah. I think that's the thing is that even though I wasn't popular, I was, I was confident. Well, you knew that everybody else is wrong. <laughs> that's what that's I just And I you're I like, believe. yeah, it's like, listen, man, you, you think you're the best and everyone else thinks you're the best probably because you got a better PR campaign than I do. Yeah, yeah. But, I'm the <laughs> but I know. And I'm going to come in subtle from the bottom and then boom, just attack. And then you go to an MFA where nobody thinks that way. <laughs> oh, yeah. Everyone, yeah, that's right. Oh, I remember God. sitting in class and uh, my MFA going, yeah, I'm the one. <laughs> you guys. Yeah, yeah. I know what I'm doing. You guys are right. I got a question for you. Mm. So you wrote this book. Mm-hmm. It's coming out. It's getting great praise. You're doing this tour. Mm-hmm. Please, please tell me you went back to that Chinese restaurant and no. shoved it in the guy's oh. face. No, no. I'm so scared of that place. I was only there for a month. <laughs> I know. No, that's, that's what my, uh, my family says as well. They're always trying to goad me to go eat at the restaurant. They've eaten at that restaurant three times since. Really? Yeah. Well, you've got trauma. I don't blame you. <laughs> Listen, I, there, there are some writers who, or, or, or yeah, I would say some writers I know who write, I call it revenge writing mm. because they just want to go back to all their critics afterward and say, see, screw you guys. I won the Pulitzer. <laughs> Well, I mean, Which never really happens. I got Michael Jordan in the Hall of Fame. That's, I mean, that's what motivated him. Oh, really? Oh, yes. Even his Hall of Fame speech. He was wow. like, was like oh, hey, yeah, high school coach who cut me when I was wow. in ninth grade. Check nice. me out. That's a long list. You know what, though? That, that, some, that, it a, makes people, it drives people. That's a tough way to live. <laughs> I wouldn't do it. I think it would make my stress level really high. But I am just saying... Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be great? <laughs> you know? It's like, screw you. I eat. feel like he's litigious, so I wouldn't want to go back for that reason. <laughs> yeah. Okay, eat humble pie. <laughs> but you had a confidence the whole way through. I did. I don't know where that came from, but I'm very happy for it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So explain how. So you, when did you finish the book? Were you, had you graduated yet, or were you still in school? I finished it. So it was kind of a perfect timeline where I started it my first semester. Um, I finished the first draft at the end of the second year, and there was a fellowship year where you're just given time to write. Mm-hmm. And so I actually sold the book at the very oh. end of the fellowship year. And are you okay. publishing short stories at this time? I was publishing a couple of short stories mm-hmm. as well. And did you write for Bon Appetit? It's in your bio. I wrote for Bon Appetit after the, um, when the book was about to come out. Oh, as well. right. yeah. Okay, we had had someone on a few weeks ago who had talked about pre-publication essays. Mm-hmm. Oh, is this that sort of thing? Is. Yes. You're a food expert now. Now I'm a food expert. Nice. <laughs> yeah, now I'm a food exactly. writer. So how much of a food expert are you? Well, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> and you worked in a Chinese restaurant for a month, which yes. gives you a little bit more authority than, like, say, me. I'm thinking <laughs> the authority comes over from her mother working at the Chinese restaurant for five years and bringing that stuff home. Maybe that's probably true, too. That could and be. Many of us have eaten at restaurants before. That makes us all sort of an expert. Well, how much research did you have to do to get up to speed? On On the food? food? Yeah. Uh, I guess I probably ate out a lot. For to get, to kind of capture, what you didn't have a menu like okay, like, but these are the ingredients. I also just have a good memory for food because I think about it a lot of times. That's probably why I enjoy thinking about the book so much. So I would just think about all the food the characters <laughs> are eating. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I think I just had a good sense of what I've just eaten a lot of American Chinese food and Chinese food growing up. So it's just strong in my in my blood and in my bones. Hmm. So how did you get an agent? I got an agent. Uh, in kind of a roundabout way. So what kind of first started was I had a professor in college who was friends with a, a someone who wanted to be an agent but was in foreign rights um, and hadn't yet signed her first author or anything like that. And so he paired us up. 
Mm. And she was fantastic. Um, we really got along, and she was just like the best cheerleader. But she was Australian and decided to go back to Australia and sort of left agenting for a year. Um, and so I was kind of kind of back in the lurch in a sense, and so I, I kind of went down every route that's possible. There were some so, agents that were brought to Michigan, agents who reached out because of short stories I'd published, and mm-hmm. I also like cold called mm-hmm. agents as well. Query.com. Mm-hmm. And eventually it worked out. So what was the process like from the moment you got the agent to the moment the book was accepted for publication mm-hmm. to the moment it became a book? Um, so that's a lot of steps. Um, yeah, <laughs> I think that what, asking for a friend. <laughs> uh, why I love and pick the agent that I have um, was that he had sort of the most edits for me, mm. uh, and I'm the kind of person who thinks like the the harshest critic is the the most honest critic, and that ended up I think being true for him. And so we just worked on rewriting parts of the book, especially that first chapter. The first chapter took months to kind of really get right. There's a lot going on. Yeah, and I think even so, I, I would want to rewrite that first chapter now. Really? How, how would you change it? I don't know. I just want to change it. <laughs> it just sure, one of those perfect. writers. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I'm the person who's like still crossing out lines in the galley copy. I have to get it like taken away from my hands. You should be a musician then, because they can always go back and record the song again. Can they really? Oh, yeah, totally. Ryan Adams puts the same song on an album like four different albums. That's actually true. You're totally right. Yeah. Yeah. Paul Simon is redoing that right now, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. Really? Paul Simon, he's been doing this for 50-some-odd years, has an album. Wow. Coming out next week, and it's all taking old songs that he did not do that did not get a lot of radio play, or and then just redoing them, redoing them. Oh. So I don't know if that's comforting to you or terrifying. <laughs> comforting, yeah. Good to know. Yeah. Uh, and then there are just uh, more edits after I got my editor as well. Mm-hmm. And was it hard to sell? Yeah, yeah, it was pretty hard to sell. Um, and I think w- what made it hard was that the when we got the rejections back, they they weren't very specific. Yeah, so so what my agent has said is that a lot of times, like they will mention, like we don't like your plot or or we don't like your your character developments. What are you supposed to do with that? <laughs> yeah. Right. But they didn't even give me that. They were just like, "This is great," uh, but no. Mm-hmm. And it was really confusing. Um, and I think, you know, my my agent ended up, I think, cornering somebody in a phone call and just sort of asking flat out what was up. And and it was a, an issue of, like, the editors not being able to quite relate to my characters, which is understandable because all the editors were white. Sure. And, uh, and I yeah. suddenly saw, like, here's this weird obstacle, which is just, like, this kind of, Em- not not necessarily empathy for the character, but like a personal connection. A connection. To the character. And how do you leapfrog that? I mean, is there a way to say, well, look, you may be a white guy, mm-hmm. but there's a bunch of Asian people out there who are going to read this, and maybe some white guys too. Mm-hmm. I think what it is is just you know. I know how much work an editor has to do and how much of that work is not actually financially compensated. Mm-hmm. And so for them to really pick a book to work on, I think it does take that that real kind of like personal heart tug. Right. And it's just hard if like all the editors that are out there are white to find that heart tug in someone. Can I tell you, like that's one of the things I learned. Like, um, you know, I came in from the, the business side and then went into the literary side. Mm. And because uh, I used to... Um, to publicity for for uh, like the major houses um, mm-hmm. out there, and you realize that it is it's it is fairly old school in the sense that the editors have to really have an attachment yeah. to the material. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. if um, if you're writing a book about surfing, 
your age, that where your agent comes into play is the agent needs to know that there's an editor out there right. who loves surfing. surfing. Not right. necessarily writing about publishing surfing books, but actually really loves surfing. And mm-hmm. it's that sort of connection because you're right. It's a commitment for the editor. It really is. So it's only a semi-meritocracy. It can be great, oh. but if it's not the kind of great that speaks to an individual editor, yeah. they'll right. pass. Yeah. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. To sort of piggyback on that, when you were searching for a place to get it published, did you only look at major publishers or did you go all the way down the line? Um, we, the sort of first round was all the major ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think after that point, we were going to go to the, the indie presses. Mm-hmm. Um, but I found an editor within that first round. Did you have any feeling either way which way you'd like to go? Um, I think that uh, since I had already started working at the bookstore at that point, I would have been happy um, with a uh, with a smaller press, just because I knew the books that they were coming out, and I mm-hmm. knew how much all the booksellers around me adored those yeah. books. And so I, I think that you know, even though there was that probably uh, part of me that was just like, but the big five—they're a big five for a reason. <laughs> but you know, luckily that the bookseller part of me was just like, chill, it's going to be fine. Was there ever? That. That's wonderful. <laughs> was there ever like a thought process that made you think, well? Maybe this one can be indie. The next one will be major. Like I'm just starting out. Maybe my, you know, maybe I'll work my way up. Yeah, I think that you know, I always thought, um, let me just publish what can allow me to keep publishing. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. The goal. yeah, yeah. So I think that was always the goal. Um, and I know that you know, the, I think the business structure might be changing. So there was that kind of pressure to be like, if the first one isn't fantastic, you won't get the second one. Mm. It's a weird feeling. I'm, I think that there's some truth to that, but I also know, I'm. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how much truth is that, and how much it is just like fear. You know that uh, if you don't like make it a you know fifty thousand copy you know bestseller, that you're mm-hmm. never going to do it again. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's, I'm not sure how much of it's myth and how much of it is real. And speaking of second books, are you already working on the second book? I'm doing what I'm calling doodling right now, mm, yeah. um, which is sort of seeing where something's going. I made the mistake of talking too much about um, a book that I was thinking about writing, and I just lost all interest in it. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and so now I know better, and so I'm just I'm just calling it doodling um, to to take that pressure off me. You know, we always say that. And I said it in the last podcast, your first one is easier than your second one because you've had your whole life to think about your first one. But Mm -hmm. honestly, for most of us, the first one isn't our first one. Yeah, that's right. You know, you wrote the beach one. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, I have have a friend who wrote eight books before he got his first one published. Mm -hmm. So I guess that isn't as valid as I thought. (laughs) (laughs) Just keep on doing what you love and do it well. Yeah. (laughs) Simple as that. Simple as that. (laughs) Keep doodling. Okay. We are just about out of time. Wonderful. Thank you so much for coming. Thank it's been you. great. And I'm kind of bummed you didn't bring any food with you. We <laughs> <laughs> were talking about that all morning. I brought, yeah. I brought some promotional chopsticks if you guys want. Heck yeah. yeah. Bring out the promotional chopsticks. <laughs> but first, yeah. before you do that, tell our listeners about your website, uh, Twitter. They can follow you. I am going to follow you because I checked last night and you're hilarious. Oh, <laughs> So I will be following you as soon as I finish here. I like you know, when it comes to Twitter, which always makes me mad. Hilarious is very hot. Oh, good. <laughs> I want hilarious. I'm just trying to be quippy as much as I can. Uh, me too. <laughs> uh, so my website is lillianleeauthor.com, uh, and my Twitter is zillionz. Uh, that's my Instagram as well. Um, and I think that's pretty much all and, I have out there. And Lee is L-I. Don't look for the other Lillian Lee because you will be really confused. <laughs> There's another Lillian Lee. 
The other Lily and Lee wrote Farewell My Concubine. Oh, really? Oh, yes. yes. Right. Oh, my God. And at first, <laughs> I was like, company. wow, that Lily, oh, man, I was all nervous. <laughs> like, that Lily and Lee is coming up. What has she done in the last? And, yeah. and it also said she uh, never does personal appearance. So, oh, my God. How <laughs> did we, we get do? her? I could still be that Lily and Lee. You are. You know, you're right. No. <laughs> wow. Good for job. Good know. for you. <laughs> you look great. Yeah, whatever you're doing. Uh, Lee, tell the people again how to find you. Me, you can go to my website, www.lee.com. DanielKravitz.com. That's K-R-A-V-E-T-Z. Not like Lenny. <laughs> Not like Lenny. If you look, if you look up Lenny Kravitz, uh, you'll be uh, slightly confused as well. Um, and you can also find me on Facebook at backslash Lee Daniel Kravitz or Twitter Lee Dan Kravitz for the casual. Among for the cash. <laughs> uh, you can find me uh, Twitter and the old Instagram uh, at that Larry Rosen. Uh, I will block you if you fat shame my dog. <laughs> As for us here at the Grotto Pod, you can find us at Twitter and Instagram at the Grotto Pod. You can email us at grottopod at gmail.com. I want to thank our producers. Uh, thank you. Thank Lee you. You're so welcome. Kravitz. <laughs> thank My you pleasure. for sitting in for it my co-host Bridget man. Quinn. This is great. Uh, thanks yeah. to Beth Weingarner and Lori Ann Doyle. Uh, and our partners, the San Francisco Public Library and Babylon Salon. Do they have a, a like a little slogan, like slogan like the premier reading series? Oh yeah, let's say yes. Let's say that that's what they call it. Bay Area. And with that, I will again close this episode by quoting my absent co-host and say, "Read, write, and just keep working." Yeah.